Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Greetings and welcome to Animal Instinct here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Celia Kutcher. I'm also known as the Food Healer, and welcome to the show. So I'm really, really, really excited about today's show. Unfortunately, the guest that was scheduled wound up in the hospital. But fortunately, Frank Grasso's here, who's saving my butt, and I really, really appreciate it. He is the associate professor at Brooklyn College, and he also runs the Biomimetic and Cognitive Robotic Lab at Brooklyn College. We are going to talk about the monk parakeets. So if you guys are from New York or from Brooklyn or around this area, you're probably familiar with these green birds that you see once in a while. That's what we're going to talk about, and I've been looking for this interview for three years, so I am completely stoked that Frank is here with me. Frank, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. How are you today? Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here with you again, Celia. I'm so excited to have you back. I mean, like, in a row. This never happens, too. So thank you so much for coming, and like I said, I've been wanting to know about these birds forever, and I haven't been able to find anyone that wanted to talk to me about them before you. So Glad to, glad to do that. We've been studying these birds in Brooklyn for almost almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah, not quite. We started in 1999, wow. so it's, it's a long time. Um, they're really an interesting uh, group of birds. They come from Argentina originally, uh-huh. and uh, they've been brought here uh, through the pet trade in the 1970s, and somehow they, they gained a foothold, not just here, but in other places of the world. So uh-huh. they're a really interesting species in terms of their resilience and flexibility. Well, that was one of the things that I was looking at when I was researching the show this afternoon. Uh, there's like all these different reasons of why they're here, including like, you know, one woman had a male and a female that she let go, and that was Adam and Eve, or or, you know, a, a crate exploded at JFK, or there was some boat that something happened to that. Like, do you know what, how they got here? Well, I think I have an idea as to, as to how, how they got here and why they're here in, in such abundance in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, the stories about the, the crate falling off of the causeway, off of a truck on the causeway at JFK, yeah. or the ship that caught fire in, in New York Harbor, and the, the captain... Uh, felt so bad for the animals, the the, 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 the the tigers and things had to drown when the ship went down, oh but, the, but the parrots could fly. All those stories, I, I've tried to track them down, and, and you can find many echoes of them through mm-hmm. New York newspapers, but I've never been able to track them back to an original story, uh, like an original v- event. And like we were talking before, it's kind of like the JFK assassination idea. Nobody totally. can believe <laughs> Nobody can believe that something as important as the assassination of a president could have been done by one lone gunman. Totally. As, as a scientist, I'm kind of neutral about that, but mm-hmm. the balance of evidence is not that that um, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. But the thing is that uh, that everybody has a theory about it. Yeah, and, and I think. Given the fact that these birds, the, the Argentinian monk parakeets, are found in many places around the world, mm-hmm. and their biology and their life cycle and, and their sociality really predisposes them to come together and find groups, mm. 
I think, and form groups. I think that the um, the most likely explanation is that these are the descendants of escapees from the pet trade who just managed to find one another yeah. and, and, and form uh, social groups. And there are things we'll talk about, about their sociality, uh, about their uh, their nest construction behavior mm-hmm. that give really good reasons why that, that explanation makes sense. But if there's a lone gunman out there somewhere, um, as a scientist, I'm always willing to entertain alternative perspectives. I mean, is there any chance in hell that the that the abundance of these birds could have really come from just like one couple? Well, um, numerically, no. Okay. Uh, numerically, uh, the the numbers of birds that have been present in Brooklyn, it's difficult to imagine uh, a number of a number of um, biological models of how reproduction works. Yeah. That that it could have come from just. Uh, you know, two birds, unless it was like in the 18, well, around the turn of the, the 20th century right, or right, something right. like that. Because there are there are just too many birds here for it to have been that kind. You have to think about, when you think about models of how uh, uh, an individual species survives, mm-hmm. you have to think about the rate at which they produce their offspring. Yeah. You have to think about how often those offspring survive to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, how often, and that means like surviving illness and predation and so forth. Yeah. And, uh, and, and those kinds of models just don't match the numbers of birds that we see in Brooklyn. That's cool. Yeah. And it makes sense because it would be like, I mean, I could see it if it was like, you know, two rats or two rodents because of the amount of babies that they have. But like when, uh, how many babies does a monk parakeet produce in a year approximately? Well, you know, um, when you're talking about birds, yeah. uh, birds lay eggs. Right. And when, um, when birds lay eggs, they tend not to lay a single egg. They lay a group of eggs mm-hmm. called a clutch. And uh, typically, monk parakeets mate uh, once during the year, oh, and okay. they uh, they produce one clutch, which could have as many as as twelve eggs at oh the my high God. end. But many of those are infertile, okay. and so typically, you're looking at being able to produce six offspring, uh, maybe four offspring, maybe eight offspring for each one of these pairs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, in a very good year, uh, a female will have one clutch early in mm-hmm. the spring, and then one late in the spring towards the early summer, and you might wow. get twice as many in there. But uh, then you have to worry about them once they hatch, yeah, exactly. actually being able to survive and so forth. So like with the monk parakeets, and I guess this is kind of standard for birds all along. Okay, they hatch and then you've got these like freaky little baby birds with like little tiny feather tips and all that. How much time do they need being taken care of by their parents before they can actually get out of the nest and live on their own? Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the period from from hatching, being a hatchling to being a nestling to being a fledgling when mm-hmm. they actually fly out. The developmental trajectory is about uh, three weeks, and then usually they're flying uh, and, and fledging from the nest safely in about a month and a half. God, that's so quick. It is quick. Uh, birds, and different birds vary in this, but the mm-hmm. developmental trajectory typically is quick because they've got to get out there and start experiencing the world and training themselves mm. up. And so learning how to fly is something that they have to do, and then learning how to forage while they're flying and yeah. get food and, and all that kind of thing. In a one-year cycle in a temperate environment, they don't have a lot of time to get all that learning in. Yeah, seriously. So they're on this sort of fast track compared to what we think. But you mentioned the rats, and uh, rats reproduce much more quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, 33 days or something like that. Maybe that number's off, but, you know, uh, just a short yeah, period of time. Crazy. And they can reproduce, you know, throughout the year. And yeah. that's why rats kind of explode across population centers like cities and so forth much more, fat, more, more rapidly than the birds can. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That makes sense. And then 
I mean, everybody talks about these birds in Brooklyn, but are they in other boroughs? Like, are they, they're not just in Brooklyn. Are they, like, in the tri-state area, or where do these guys hang out? Yeah, sure. So um, Brooklyn has paid a lot of attention. The people in Brooklyn have paid a lot of attention Mm -hmm. uh, to the birds, um, the parrots in particular. And uh, so they're in Brooklyn, but they're also in the other boroughs. There are some in Queens, very, very rarely. Uh, There are some up in the Bronx. Uh, There are a lot in New Jersey across the river. Large groups out there have been out there um, in Fort Wayne. That kind of area. Oh my God! I used to teach in Leonia actually at Overpeck Park, and they were there in the summer. I forgot about that. That's exactly right. Totally. And and, and, and they were a big sensation there. And then uh, there were a few. I've had a few reports of of, of nest sites in in Manhattan, uh, but Brooklyn seems to be the place where people really love them and pay attention to them. And so we hear a lot about them, you know, word of mouth. And a surprising thing is, you know, these birds, they're bright green. Mm-hmm. Okay, we don't we don't have any bright green birds here, right? And I, I like to joke that the, some of the people that I know at the college say birds, well, there were two kinds. Cause these are city people talking about birds, right? <laughs> there were the big gray ones, and then there are the small brown ones. Totally. Right? <laughs> and I can go on and on about all these different species and stuff. But you would think that a green bird would just draw a lot of attention. And Absolutely. I, I think it does to people that are inclined towards these parrots. Yeah. But a lot of people are really surprised when I tell them, no, there are are hundreds and hundreds of of, uh, green, you know, Argentinian monk parakeets living in Brooklyn. Uh, I mean, I had a friend about, God, it was probably about 15 years ago now. We were just driving around and we wound up, I don't even know where the hell we were. We were past Sheep's Head Bay. We were in Brooklyn. And I I hate to admit, I don't know the neighborhood I was in, but it was like huge houses, you know, and this like, it's amazing neighborhood I didn't know existed. And we went to see the parrots. And they were also talking about, you know, there's palm trees in Brooklyn. I was like, come on, no, they're not. And here's these palm trees with these birds in it. And it was like, you've got to be kidding me, you know. And there was a huge population there. And you could hear them. They were loud. Like, I've never really heard that before in terms of, like, in Williamsburg, you know, or where they are. Because I'm in Red Hook, and they're definitely, they don't, if they come to Red Hook, they don't hang out very long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that loudness is actually an important thing. They are very vocal, very vocal birds. Mm -hmm. And when they come together, they're what we call gregarious. They come together in large groups. Oh, they God, like to perfect. be. And and they make a heck of a lot of noise. Yeah, um, they do. Uh, a lot of people uh, in Brooklyn have had sort of complaints about them because they would tend to build nests on air conditioners. Oh, and God. if you're in a little studio or apartment in the summer and you've got an air conditioner and you're on the ninth floor of a building yep. and the parrots build this nest, they're going to keep you awake at night because yeah, they, they are just so, so very, very loud. Uh, and 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 they make a lot of noise, and uh, so th- that vocalization is important, and I think it's part of the key to their success in being able to colonize areas mm. as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say this because years ago I used to live in the Bahamas, and there was the island I was on, which was which Eleuthera, and. It's a very, very interesting place, and it's beautiful, and it's lovely, and all that. It's not a lot of tourists, which is why I like it, but. We get people that would live there and get like these amazing ideas and do like these crazy things. And there was a guy who knew the history of the island and there was a whole spread of parrots on the island back in the day. And so he decided he was going to repopulate the island with parrots, right? Built these incredible aviaries. It was unbelievable. And raised birds for... Oh, I don't even know, five, six years, and had like, it was like a zoo. I mean, it was amazing. So everyone's all excited about this, and how cool is this? And of course, his neighbors right around him hate him because, you know, it's sunrise and sunset. It's the loudest place on the planet. He lets all these birds go. He frees them, right? We're going to repopulate the Bahamas with parrots. Let me tell you, man, within six months, 
everybody killed them because they were so loud and so destructive. They were ripping up people's roofs. And it was really sad to watch this from a side, you know, as an animal lover, like, oh, my God, look, they're so pretty. And it was like, bang, oh, my God, like, what just happened? So to see that kind of thing where it's, you know, basically people against animals in terms of, well, they're really loud and they're really... And it's like, well, this is what they are. Yeah. You know, it was a really interesting thing to see, though. And um, an experience because it was like it seemed like such a great idea, and then you know six months off there was not a bird to be found, which was pretty sad. Well, there's plenty of plenty of parrots still in Brooklyn, and I think that the, the as I said, the people in Brooklyn have a real kind of sentimental attachment to them, mm-hmm. and so there's been a lot of community support for them, and they're not actually sort of hunting them down and, and killing them and stuff. And 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 mostly, I think Brooklyn people like to complain about the noise of the parrots because it kind of gives, if they're, say, for example, on the air conditioner outside of their bedroom window, yeah. it kind of gives them a little bit of distinction to be able to talk about it. But uh, on the other hand, they, they really are. And that, that's one of the ways that we find out about them is when people, you know, contact totally. us with complaints of, you know, what do we do about these things? And, and another thing that's nice is that people tend to be uh, wanting not to go and like shoot them all and so forth, Good. but more like, what's the humane way to get rid of this problem? Oh, thank God. You know, which is kind of like here in Roberta's, we kind of expect that kind of attitude. Totally. It seems to have permeated Brooklyn in a lot of ways. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, positive. Right, right next to Brooklyn College, where I am, because mm-hmm. there, there have been parrots there quite a bit. Um, it's really, really beautiful. Someone, I don't know who, sometime before I arrived in, in Brooklyn 20 years ago or so, they, uh, they took a little park. And they made a fence in the park, and they made these beautiful metal cutouts that look just like uh, the monk parakeets. Oh, cool! So you can go there, and it's it's uh, it's called a spot, spot lot, something like that. And uh, this fence has these beautiful parrots, and they have really uh, stylized but anatomically accurate models of little baby parrots. Oh, cool! And I've always thought that that's kind of like on the fence is like three dozen of these on each length, and it's like this reflection that somebody in the community loved the birds enough, totally. and paid enough attention to them to say, okay, yeah, there are the adult birds, and then there are the babies, and they knew wow. what they looked like, and you know, it's. This, it's a nice spot where you stand there. You can actually look out and you can see the parrots being active and stuff. That's so cool. Yeah. And so why why are these birds so popular? Like when they first were coming in here, what's sure. the story with them? So so we can go to the story of why the parrots. I, I think the, the parrots are here, and, and other people kind of share this attitude, uh, this this perspective. The the parrots were uh, brought in here in the 1970s mm-hmm. as what I like to call uh, the poor man's African gray parrot. Okay. African gray parrots are just magnificent. Uh, birds. They're very, very smart. They're great uh, vocal imitators. Mm-hmm. And, and and if that's what you want when you want a parrot, right. uh, you know, you get these. Alex, the famous uh, parrot that was the subject oh, yeah, of yeah, Irene yeah. Pepperberg's totally. studies on, on, on language, uh, you know, putative language and so forth. Uh, uh, he was an African Greg. Oh, cool. So they're beautiful. Big, they're big, wonderful birds. And they're expensive. Yeah, they're really and, expensive. And they live, you know, 70 years, yeah. 75 years. So, you know, if you if you get an African gray parrot when you're 50 years old, you have to make plans in your totally, will to make totally. sure that somebody can take care of this animal afterwards because they bond with you and everything. Yeah. So the, the monk parakeets came in because African grays were so expensive, but they're comparably good vocal learners. Mm. And so uh, people brought them in. They were inexpensive. They were captured in abundance uh, in South America and Argentina and, mm-hmm. and Uruguay and Paraguay and brought up through New York, through the pet trade, and also to other places in the country. Mm. And uh, they didn't stay in their cages. 
Um, oh you know, so if you bring in thousands and thousands of these birds and a few of them escape, mm -hmm. um, they will use those vocalizations to be able to come together because they're gregarious. Totally. They'll be able to find one totally. another. And then we'll talk in a bit about their nest construction activity, which is really remarkable. Yeah. But they would be able to find one another. And I think that's basically what happened is instead of one event, there was this constant um, influx of these parrots from the pet trade and then a leaking of them mm -hmm. escaping. And once they found one another, they would mate and they would begin to form uh, communities and colonies uh, in, wherever they were. And we see this all around the world. They're in Florida. They're, they're a huge problem in Florida. The state of Florida is, does a lot to try to manage them as an invasive <laughs> species. Uh, Connecticut uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s uh, had really serious problems with them all along the coast of Connecticut. I'm and shocked. sort of declared war on them. And <laughs> the legislature declared that they, they could be hunted and, and Oh, removed. my God. Yes. And um, they're in Texas. Uh, they're in Chicago. There's a big group in You're Chicago. Just, and these are the things that make sense. But they're even more in more you know distant places like in Rome, Italy. I've seen mm -hmm. them. I've seen their nests in Barcelona, Spain. Cool. They're across Spain uh, in, in pockets, not covering the whole place. Mm -hmm. and, and in places in Italy and other places in Europe, there's some in Australia. Um, and basically, it's kind of following the pattern of where people brought them in as pets because mm -hmm. they certainly didn't fly from Argentina across the yeah, ocean. There's right? no way. But they still form these these colonies because of their their social structure and uh, and their ability to find one another, presumably through this vocal. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, we need to break for station identification. I am speaking to Frank Grasso all about the monk parakeets in Brooklyn. Stay tuned. We're going to talk more. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed. You get the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. So what you want to do once you buy whole grain flour is keep it kind of wrapped so that oxygen can't get to it so it doesn't go rancid. But the good news about having that fat is that it has a lot of flavor. If you want, you can actually buy the wheat germ, for instance, and add it back to flours. But if you buy Bob's Red Mill product, it already has the germ in it, so you don't have to. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we are back. I am talking to Frank Grasso all about the monk parakeets that are in Brooklyn specifically, but we're talking about them everywhere. So, Frank, one of my huge questions is, you know, New York and like Chicago, my God, I mean, the weather's brutal. Like, how does this exotic bird that grew up in the tropics, how are they surviving in the winters? Sure, sure. Well, there's a couple of answers to that. And one of them is they aren't really, they didn't really come from the tropics. Oh, okay. They're they're from they're they're from Argentina at yeah. a latitude about as far oh, God, south right. as we are north. So they're already predisposed to this kind of environment. So okay. you can think about like all of those the belt of beautiful parrots that live in the, the tropical um, um, rainforests and mm -hmm. so forth of Brazil. That's what I think of whenever I see a parrot. I'm and, like Brazil, you and, know? And, and that's the natural thing. And there's such a diversity of them there. But as you go south, they get fewer and fewer. Mm. And the monk parakeets are. Uh, a, a, southerly, a more southerly species, which means, of course, that they're getting in colder and colder climates. Totally. So they've colonized and been able to uh, adapt to that climate. And part of pr probably how they do that as well is that they build these enormous nests. 
So I'll give you my little my little spiel. That yeah, I, I want to hear to, all about I, the desk. I, well, this is a little thumbnail thing that I you know, I have lots of students that come through and do project work over the years. They've done project work on the parrot, so I I give them this little bit so they can understand just how special uh, these these animals are. As we do field studies of them, we study them in the field, not in the laboratory. Yeah. So um, birds generally. Um, a mama bird and a papa bird will come together and they'll build a nest and it'll be a bowl-shaped nest. Mm-hmm. And they'll occupy it for about three, four weeks. They'll lay the eggs in there. The eggs will be incubated. They'll hatch and then the birds will fledge and fly away and mm-hmm. they'll abandon the nest. Okay, So it's a bowl. It's got two birds involved in it. What the monk parakeets do with their nesting is that they build these enormous stick nests that are kind of like condominiums. Oh, cool. So there's a chamber where they weave the sticks together, and there's a kind of entranceway that kind of goes, and and here I am gesturing with my hands in the studio. (laughs) It's like a a hole. It's a parrot-sized hole that kind of goes up and then down and opens up inside into a chamber. And these things can be, the individual chambers can be something like four or five feet long and when all the sticks are added and and a big bundle. And then a whole bunch of them will be kind of accreted and put together. Mm So you can have a really huge nest that's, say, 20 feet across, and it's just this mass of sticks that have all of these chambers in them. And the thing is, the business about mom birds and papa birds, well... More than a pair of birds occupy these chambers. That's as a natural observation. So mm-hmm. they're shared by groups of parrots, and the numbers of parrots, uh, monk parakeets, that are present there far outnumber like two times the number of chambers. So wow. these these um, these uh, uh, nests are sort of communal focal points for the animals. They come together, uh, they stay in the vicinity, they communicate with one another vocally. And that's one of the reasons why this this social structure, that they probably have survived and accreted here, mm-hmm. right, in the sense that um, that they have these huge structures and they work compulsively year-round. They don't abandon them. They stay there year-round. Wow. Even, like right now, it's March, their yeah. mating season is beginning, and, and there's a lot of activity here, mm-hmm. that, but there's activity throughout the year. They're constantly present at the nest. And I think part of what happens is they get this thermal insulation from the nest that allows mm-hmm. them to exploit other, other environments. Now, many parrots will build nests by going into hollows and trees, and okay. they get that insulation. But the monk parakeets, by building these nests that probably... Well, I won't, I won't go that far, but building this nest that kind of simulate what happens with a, with a chamber inside of a hollow of a tree, they can go to different environments. They can, mm. they can bring the, the hollows with them rather than trying to find them. And this is one of the innovations of the parrots. They're like, wild. Yeah, they're like architects. So I think, and architects is the wrong word to use because we're talking on this television show, this, tele, this radio show, uh, uh, Animal Instinct. Yeah. And I think nest construction is largely instinctive with these animals. They make some decisions um, about where to place the sticks, but they're, they're kind of instinctively building these nests as yeah. part of their species characteristic. So we talk about temperature, right? Yeah. The first bit is they're already pre-adapted from where they live to, to handle the kinds of extremes of temperature that we have here. And second, probably in their phylogenetic history in the past, building these large nests gave them an edge to be able to colonize so, sort of more marginal environments. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that's why it was so great when I came here to Brooklyn that I could study these birds uh, because... Uh, I got to look at these interesting birds with all these interesting sorts of behaviors. There's there's plenty more to say about life at the nest, at these huge communal nests. so wild. I mean, it's something that, you know, it's a communal nest is something that has never crossed my mind ever. Because I, you know, I'm the one like, oh, look, it's the robin nest with the cute little blue egg in it. You know, it's the fact that they like, it's their center point and kind of like, you know, their home base. But everything, it's like their social headquarters, too. It's amazing. We've been tracking some of these nests for for 15 years. They've been continuously occupied. 
occupied for 15 years. Wow. We don't know that the same parrots have been there for 15 years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you could imagine that, that there was some generational changes, some changing of hands, but mm-hmm. continuously maintained nests. Not all of them, but some of them have been around that long. So, like, how smart do you think these birds are? Well, you know, we talked about this when we talked about octopuses, yeah, too. Totally. It's really difficult know, to say how... I know, it's a terrible how, question. I'm how, sorry. How intelligent things are. Uh, <laughs> how intelligent animals are. But but I would say that, you know, you know African gray parrots and, and monk parakeets, they're these vocal learners. Yeah. They have these capacities for plastic behavior, for adaptable behavior. Mm-hmm. So, based on that, rather than, like, giving them an algebra quiz or something exactly, like that... Exactly, like, they're a five-year-old we, child, you know. We, we can say that, that they really are, you know... Uh, intelligent, innovative. They they do innovate new behaviors. They do create new behaviors and yeah. so forth. Um, but, you know, the business is about the instinct as well, the animal instinct. The, the, you go from one monk parakeet nest to another monk parakeet nest, and if you look at b- enough of them, you begin to see more than just a, p- a pile of sticks. There are mm-hmm. characteristic ways that they build them, but there's no, you know, Gaudi building the right, Sangreta right, right. Familia amongst them. There's none of them that's innovating a new design or anything like that. Uh, they're, they're very, very good and they're flexible. They make a lot of choices about where to build these nests. They make a lot of social choices about how to share and cooperate with them. So I'd say that these are very intelligent creatures, just, just like most parrots are. I'm just amazed that they have like a social structure. I mean, is it a kind of, you know, people always use the term like alpha when discussing groups of animals and like the one that's the leader. I have real issues about this, but that's my own thing. I mean, in their social structure, is there like a boss or is this like a big commune? It's, it's, it's um, probably... There is. It's probably like a commune, mm-hmm. but there's there's probably family structure, mm-hmm. and so when we look at these these chambers that are are nearby, there's a number of models from bird species, other bird species, uh, that suggest that the birds that are in an area are related to one another, mm-hmm. and so. Um, one thing that happens with certain species of birds is they become what's called cooperative breeders, mm-hmm. and that means that uh, the parents will have offspring in one year. And then in the next year, some of the offspring from that year will come and help the parents to raise oh their God. offspring. They, they're called helpers, right? And um, in, Afri- in, in scrub jays, in Florida scrub jays, uh-huh. there's a whole physiological mechanism that's been worked out about that. We know about oxytocin and, and so forth, wow. levels in their brain that, that cause this kind of activity to happen. And uh, there's some interesting differences there, but it's it's part of what's built into them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we really need is the ability to take some of these communities apart genetically to find out if they really are all closely related yeah. or uh, uh, whether they are... Um, uh, you know, uh, aggregates of different groups of birds, uh, you know, different families of birds. So, you know, if you, you look around an area where there are birds like Brooklyn, uh, you will find that there are these clusters of nests mm-hmm. that are kind of spatially close together mm-hmm. and they're within calling distance of one another. And uh, and that, that seems to be the kind of thing that, like, you have one successful nest and maybe it's kind of mushrooming out, mm-hmm. right? That right, right. one successful pair of parents, they, they build as many chambers onto this vicinity and then, and this is speculation on, yeah. on on my part. It just seems to make sense from the pattern of the data. We really need that DNA analysis to know the relatedness of these animals. But um, then maybe there's an adjacent tree that they can they can all stay together in their social group, mm-hmm. and it can be that kind of a thing. And then maybe there'll be outliers coming in from other communities, like um, 
you know, bring some genetic uh, variation in with some individuals from other groups coming in. You know, it's funny. It's, it's, it's like, you know, okay, like you look at dogs, right? And there's a million different kinds of dogs. But like when you're talking about something as specific as a monk parakeet, it's really interesting to me that the DNA, you, that you could get so much out of the DNA and it just wouldn't be like, oh, monk parakeet. Oh, look, another monk parakeet. Like that's amazing to me that there's actually changes in it. Or... Well, you know, it's like it's like human beings. Uh, you know, we, we uh, you, you and your sister have similar, greater, yeah. if you have a sister. I don't even know I if do. you have a sister. I have, have two, you, 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 you and your sister, <laughs> uh, you have greater similarity in your DNA than, than I would to either of you. Right, right. And so that's the kind of DNA work we'd be looking to do is like figuring out who's related to who. Is the structure just, you know, there's like one patriarch or is there one matriarch or mm-hmm. are they all cousins or is it possible that there are others from the outside? And the most, most likely thing is that there's a lot of relatedness and then a few from the outside uh, of the family unit. Makes right? sense. So when you say, is there a boss? Um, Probably there are mated pairs associated with each chamber that mm-hmm. are sort of dominant, and then maybe there are related individuals that are sharing that chamber. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, second generation or something like that. Uh, and there are a lot of bird models about how that works. But in terms of like there being a foreman saying, okay, you will construct the West Wing, exactly, exactly. uh, that, that's not going on. It's a, <laughs> kind of a, a self organizing process with the birds. Yeah? It's really, it's just amazing to me, you know, and it's. This is a really stupid question, so bear with me. And I, I just, I absolutely don't know the answer at all. This is why I'm asking you. It's okay. So you've got New York. Okay, we got pigeons, we got sparrows, we got. You mean some the gray pumpkins. ones and the brown ones? Exactly. We got gray ones, brown <laughs> ones, and really big brown ones that eat things in Central Park oh, and freak out right, all the right, tourists. Right, right, yeah. Oh my God! I saw one with a rabbit one day. Mm-hmm. And it was like five feet up in a tree, and people were losing their minds. It was like, oh my God, nature. But my question is: Is it? Could it be possible for a um, monk parakeet and, like, let's say, one of the big gray ones to breed and create some new strain of bird? Or is it just kind of like, no, I'm a monk parakeet, that's all I go for? Yeah. Um, yeah, this, 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 the species concept, right, says that there's no way you could have um, two unrelated species breed and produce another offspring mm-hmm. because that's kind of the definition of a species. So, like, you know, if you, um, if you take a, a horse... And a donkey, right? They'll uh, they'll um, they'll be able to produce an offspring, but it won't be viable. Yep, it'll be sterile. Yep. So even if uh, a pigeon and and a uh, a parrot were to copulate, um, they just wouldn't be. They probably wouldn't produce any offspring at all. Mm-hmm. And if two parrots that were closely enough related were able to do that, chances are it wouldn't produce a new species because there's just too many genetic yeah, dissimilarities yeah, yeah. like that. Makes sense. Yeah. So so the 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 organization of these guys is there's this got to be this genetic component. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing about what happened with these birds is there's a selection process. They were the ones that were slow enough to be caught in Argentina. Oh wow! They were totally. the ones. They were the ones that were tough enough to be able to survive the ocean voyage. Oh my god! And then they were the ones that like passed through this bottleneck of being inhuman. Uh, living rooms and yeah. things and cages yeah. and then smart enough to be able to escape. So all these levels of selection on them. And then they adapted to the new environment and there were new materials to work with and so forth. It's all that kind That's of resilience really that makes them interesting. And they're probably really different from the ones that are, are back, back in Argentina, right? That totally yeah. makes sense. And that, God, that's a really good point. I wonder if uh, we've got like the you know, stronger, braver, faster bird than what's in Argentina now. Or dumber, meaner Brooklyn birds. Totally, you know? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who knows which way those things go? <laughs> it's the truth. You know, God yeah. only knows. Yeah. So what got you into studying these guys? Oh, well, you know, uh, when I first came to Brooklyn... Um, 
uh, I, I had uh, I direct the biomimetic and cognitive robotics lab, and it took a while for my laboratory to be ready. Mm. And so I can't sit still, <laughs> and I have all this background in, in animal behavior, and I started to see possibilities. That's some of the things we've talked about mm-hmm. here. I saw possibilities for asking basic research questions and being connected to the community. So I started sending undergraduate students out with pencil and paper just to collect basic observations. Because when I first came here, I didn't know about them. And I was just astounded as anybody would be seeing these beautiful green birds. Yeah, it's crazy. These hyperactive birds. So it was just a a happenstance. And Mm -hmm. I had all of the sort of knowledge and background to say, I'm going to study these guys. And so I started doing it. And it really has taken on, I was going to say legs, but it's taken on wings (laughs) of its own in all kinds of directions I hadn't expected when I first got here. What really surprises me is, I mean, like, I'm not lying when I say I've been trying to get this interview for years. It's it seems that the majority of the people that work with these birds are very, very secretive about them. And I respect that. I really, really do. Um, It was frustrating trying to get this. And honestly, if we didn't chat about this after last week, I mean, I never would have known that you did this, you know. Um, but why do you think that is? Why do you think it's been so hard for me to find someone to talk to me about these birds? <laughs> um, well, you know, I think uh, there are a number of people in Brooklyn that uh, that uh, that love the birds, mm-hmm. and uh, they kind of keep this this folk wisdom going. And there are people that run tours to allow people to see the birds. Oh, cool. and they're kind of um, you know sort of on this profit margin for yeah. the birds. Uh, and I think part of this thing about this, the big gray ones and the small brown ones is, you know, a lot of people just don't know that they're there. And so totally. they aren't a huge topic of conversation. Um, also, you know, um, like we talked about last time with octopuses, there, this is not an area that gets a lot of funding. And yeah, that's so true, huh? It's, it's tough to, you know, there's no parrot institute here in Brooklyn to study them. Yeah. Uh, right. And I can imagine a rat institute, right? I mean, we God, you know, they're a public health pro- issue and so forth. So um, I can't tell you why you weren't able to find people, but I do think that this is another one of those areas where the people that study them are, are few and far between. Yeah. And another, another thing I think is that, um, you know, <clears throat> these birds are living in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. And so part of what really attracted the, me to them was the fact that they're adapting to this really alien place. Yeah. But I think most people who study uh, parrots, um, at least parrots in the wild, mm-hmm. are interested in their natural behavior, mm-hmm. in their natural environment. And they would kind of see these birds as it's an interesting uh, twist on the actual bird, kind of mm-hmm. like all that selection that I talked to you yeah, about totally, before. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Makes sense. And so, um, what did I want to ask you? Oh, so who are their predators? Oh, sure. Um, well, you know, you were mentioning these these large gray birds. Uh, we have often, and w- w- I have had literally hundreds of students from Brooklyn College who have gone out and made observations mm-hmm. of the monk parakeets all around all around Brooklyn, and um, we have seen peregrine falcons uh, take oh no take the 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 the, the uh, monk parakeets on the wing. So monk parakeets, as I said, are very social, and they will fly together. It's beautiful to watch. They'll fly together in a straight line, Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll be calling to each other and everything. And this is just like, okay, this is the beacon to attract, you know, ringing the dinner bell. And you'll just, it's very subtle, but you'll just see the parrots flying along, 
and the peregrine falcon will just dive <laughs> very high, and there'll be an explosion of green feathers in the air. Oh and you, you, it's like it's like one of those Disney things. We don't see anything really gory. Oh, it's thank just God. like there's the explosion of feathers. Like what the heck happened? And maybe if you look, you'll see down in the bushes or in the ground somewhere. There's yeah, this. yeah. So so that's another thing about about these birds here is that uh, the, about the monk parakeets is that uh, they really came into a place where they didn't have uh, very many mm. of the natural predators. I mean, things like weasels and stuff will go in and will um, will take eggs if they can get in, but there aren't a lot of weasels left in New York That's City. That's true. And uh, rats would do the same thing, but they have to get into the nest, and the birds are pretty well, good at so defending well the nest. they're so well fed that, like, they're, right? I don't think they're going to Too bother. lazy to climb the yeah, trees, Yeah, they got like McDonald's that. and everything else around here. So the interesting historical thing that goes with this is that um, there's been a theory, which might or might not be, you know, supported, that part of the reason that the monk parakeets have survived in a number of places on the eastern United States is that they're filling a vacated niche, and oh, that is okay. the old Carolina parakeet. There used to be millions and millions of them, and they would make these huge, uh, you know, migrations oh, and wow. so forth. And they were hunted to extinction in the 19th century <laughs> uh, to make uh, feathers, to get their big, long tail feathers into women's hats. Lovely. Right? Yeah. So, um, so the idea is that this niche was just waiting for these birds mm-hmm. to, to fill it. Um, I'm not sure that that's <clears throat> that's perfectly true, but um, it's a nice idea about yeah. like there was a niche ready for them that they were able to to fill. And of course, things have moved on since then. Uh, so one of the things that we, you know I was talking about their nests and so forth. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I'd like to ask for with the listeners, if we've excited them, is their help in trying to find nests so that we can study them. Yeah, please tell us what we have to do for you. So like. Um, we rely on, we have a, people that are volunteers that, uh, that work and do field work, like trying to scout the city for us to help us find these locations, because we don't have magic bird detectors and so forth. <laughs> so we, we rely on, on verbal reports and so forth. So uh, monk parakeet nests are, as I've described them already, very large, and uh, they have a nice round hole in them. They're made of sticks, all woven together, you know, maybe sticks that are six inches long. Some of them could be as long as, you know, a, a yard long, but all oh woven in together to make these, these structures that have hollows inside. They're typically on telephone poles. Really? Uh, you can find them in, yeah, and Con Edison is not happy oh, with I'll having them thrilled. do that. We'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> um, they could be on trees. Uh, I told you they can be on air conditioners. Yeah. And if you see these green birds going in and out, um, we would like to know where they are so we can add them to our, our field study lists. That'd be great. And so we have a, um, a, a, a Gmail site where people can send in reports to us. Oh, cool. It's bcr underscore Parrots, parrots, P-A-R-R-O-T-S, at Brooklyn, sorry, at uh, Gmail. Oh, perfect. At gmail.com. So, yeah, if people find these, uh, we would love to hear uh, reports about, about where they are so we can go and investigate and get a better understanding of these animals. It's really, I'm just, they've always just, the first time I saw one, it felt like I was watching like, a Disney cartoon or something. It was like, these birds just don't belong here. And, if the, and my first reaction was like, oh, my God, this must belong to someone and they let them out. And, you know, I had this whole fantasy going like, oh, they let them out. And the bird comes home at night and sleeps back in its cage. And it was like, no, man, they're wild. And it was like, yeah. really? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so thrilled to have gotten this information um, from you because it's just such an anomaly when you're, you know, you're walking around Greenpoint. And all of a sudden you look up, there's a tree of birds and they're all green. And it's like, what in the hell is and, this? And how many did you see when you were there? God, I, um, I remember one afternoon I was walking back, I was rehearsing somewhere and I was walking back to the train and there must have been, Jesus, at least seven, maybe up to 25 of them in a tree. Yeah. It was yeah. loud. I mean, it was loud and a lot of, you know, the chatter and the chatter and the chatter and you could see some of them. Um, 
and it may have only been seven birds, but wow, it sounded like it's you know a thousand. Well, we've we've often seen aggregations in Brooklyn of upwards of fifty of them cool. at one time. And you talk about loud; they'll all come together in one tree, and it's like they're they're a parliament or something. They're making a decision. <laughs> no, I want to fly to the north. No, I want to fly to the west. And then, <laughs> like all of a sudden, there'll be some decision made in the group, and they will all fly collectively in one direction. It's amazing. Yeah, it's and, amazing. And and often it's like. There's these trees that are these like roosting points where they come together and they find one another. Perhaps they're sharing information mm-hmm. and then they make the decision to all fly off as a group. They form flocks uh, on, on the fly that way. That's a real trip. Yeah. So what's your favorite thing about these birds? Oh, boy. So many things to choose from. Um, I, I really like this word that I've used. Uh, and it's an abstract thing. It's their resilience. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've colonized so many places around the world. They're, they're adaptable and and. One thing that I think we all really need and respect is resilience, right? The yeah, ability no to, to persevere being the best parrots that we can be or the best people we can be, no mm-hmm. matter how much the world buffets us around. <laughs> and, uh, and and I think that that's one of the best things about these birds is their resilience. I just think they're beautiful. And I'm, I'm so excited to have shared this information. I'm like, you've made my month. I mean, between the octopus and this, Frank, I owe you big, man. I mean, seriously. <laughs> is, there pizza? is there pizza around here somewhere? We, We're at Roberta's. We can totally get you pizza. If you need pizza, we can hook you up with that. No problem. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you want to tell us about these birds? We've got about two minutes. So I guess I should say that, that uh, we should all be kind to these birds. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a subset of the population, that of the human population, that really takes advantage of them. In the 1970s, mm. when they were being imported, they, they thought they were going to be agricultural pests, and the government said no more parrots coming in. Mm. They stopped their importation. So all of the birds that are here are... The descendants of the ones that came here. Cool. And it is illegal to import these parrots now. So people will go around and try to collect the baby parrots from the nests in order to make a buck, in order to disrupt the nest, take the baby. And you realize to turn it into a pet that you can sell in a pet store, um, you need to hand raise it. Otherwise, it's just this wild animal. Yeah, totally. So there are people that shortcut the process of the internal breeding. Mm. And it can get they can get away with it because as the, this this outside species they're not protected by the Migratory Bird Act, so there's no legal oh, recourse on. we have to protect them. So if we want to protect these birds and help them, which we can debate whether or not that's a good thing to do, yeah. but if we want to, it's a good idea to look out for them. So I'd like to say that. Yeah, you know? I think that's really important, and I. My God, you've rendered me speechless, Frank. This doesn't happen, man. <laughs> well, we get another hour. I can keep talking. I know, right? We can fake it. We'll just, you know, screw ferment about it. We're going through them. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry, Mary and Chris. They're going to kill me. <laughs> but like I said, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to know more about these birds, and I hope my listeners enjoyed that, too. It's so nice to finally have some answers after just kind of blindly looking in the sky and thinking some little old lady let go of a bird, and this is what happened, you know? Okay. It's been a pleasure. For all my listeners, thank you so much. Uh, you can find me on iTunes. You can find me on Stitcher if this is a bad time to listen. I have an Animal Instinct page on Facebook. I'm on Twitter as Food Healer. I'm on Instagram as Animal Instinct Radio or Brooklyn Celia. So if you're bored and you want to find out more about me, please check it out. I will be back next week, hopefully with a new episode. Hopefully my guests will be recovered and recuperated, and we can go from there. Until then, have a great week and take care. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.